Greetings, future fossils. I'm reporting to you from January 8th, 2018, my birthday and the second anniversary of this show's first episode taping. Here in that strange liminal place on the calendar between the turning over of the solar and lunar years, these first three weeks of January when the light is low and the contemplations heavy, seemed like a good time to dredge up this recording from last year's Burning Man Festival where I gave a talk at Palenque Norte, the long-running psychedelic speaker series about major transitional moments in the history of life on Earth, past, present, and future. About how in the overquoted words of Semisonic, every new beginning is some other beginning's end, or that creation and destruction are merely concepts depending on how we divvy up the world and its unbroken, continuous unity into things we can say, oh, this is being created, this is being destroyed. As it happens, the most destructive, turbulent, violent, difficult, tumultuous periods are where we find the greatest opportunities for growth and renewal. I hope this conversation adds to the conceptual toolkit you can use to enjoy and thrive an age in which disruption of everything familiar seems to be the primary trend. And I hope it provides you with some solace and perspective if you're going through loss, grieving the worlds we have to leave behind us as we move into a new time with its own new logic. But before we begin this recording, I want to take a moment to thank all of the new subscribers to Future Fossils Podcast, both on iTunes and on Patreon, Samuel Arnold and Jansen Carter. Thank you so much for joining the Future Fossils community with your monthly pledges. Thanks to Hillary Selden for raising her pledge. This show takes an enormous amount of time and energy, and your contributions help me keep my schedule open to be a complete human being and offer other things in service to the world, like my writing and my art and my music, all of which are available as rewards in one form or another to Patreon supporters. So thank you. Of course, the whole point of this show is to offer a free gift to the commons and to posterity. And it's in the spirit of gifting that I've put up a ton of music and other talks and free goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. So even if you don't have a dime to your name, you probably have an internet connection. Please feel free to help yourself to all of those things. I hope that they improve your day, week, month, year, decade, or whatever. <laughs> if you don't have any money, but you still want to help out the show, get it into the ears of some new people that can join our discussions then leave Future Fossils a rating on iTunes. Five-star ratings are the primary way that this podcast is recommended to new listeners, and it only takes a minute. So if you haven't, please go do that, and then let me know, and I'll send you a token of my appreciation. Lastly, and in accordance with today's theme of sweeping changes that transform everything, I've been following developments in the new economy space, cryptocurrencies, etc., very closely as an area where we can watch evolutionary dynamics playing out in real time. And I can offer some kind of unique perspective and insight onto the major changes that human society and culture are going through right now as we climb this steep slope of novelty into new decentralized or distributed forms of governance and social interaction. I never thought I'd find this stuff so interesting, and I would love to share with you what I'm discovering. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can go to tinyletter.com slash crypto reader and sign up for a free weekly newsletter that I will send out with all of the cool news that I find and comments on that news. It's one more thing I'm doing to make sure that as many people as possible can benefit from my research. So thank you all so much for listening. Feel free to reach out to me anytime, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. Future Fossils has a very lively Facebook discussion group where I post interesting science, art, technology, philosophy, news, often several times a day. So if you're not part of that group and you use Facebook, come join us. And with that, 
Let's time travel back to August 2017, Black Rock City, Nevada, where I walked this audience through a short tour of some of Earth's most catastrophic moments and how those moments actually prepared the biosphere for the rich and creative and intelligent dynamic world that we inhabit now. predicated on the notion that since there are more people studying the ancient world today than we're living in it, it may be safe to assume that our greatest audiences are yet unborn. And uh, thus, this is really par for the course. Like really, I'm glad that you're here so that we can have a conversation that will reach beyond this room and beyond this moment and will involve and inspire people far beyond the space-time coordinates of our funky little hoedown here. So just to set the scene, I think I can rock all of this out in, in just a few quick moments and say that my academic background is in evolutionary biology and specifically in, in dinosaur paleontology. And that I, from the age of three, was obsessed with the ancient world and with deep time. And that even though we're living in a metamorphic age now, an age where transformation is the rule and vision and speculation has consumed tradition in many respects. But I feel that the only way, in the, in the words of Buckminster Fuller, like the further forward you want to go, the further back you have to go, or something like that. And so for me, the important thing to do with uh, a talk like this is to help us orient ourselves in time to understand how we fit within a larger cosmic portrait to restore a sense of cosmopolitanism, meaning to truly be a citizen of the cosmos and to reclaim in some sense a universal identity that we abandoned in our justifiable move away from mythic religion a few hundred years ago. That every stage of human or cultural development tends to repress its predecessor in an effort to distance itself, to differentiate itself, the same way that a child says no before saying yes to that child's parents. You know, and so now we're at a point where we can start saying yes again to the wisdom of antiquity and our pre-modern medicine traditions and our esoteric ways of knowing and the somatic knowledge of a body that we are learning to love with a fresh perspective. And so part of my role in helping to articulate or to midwife the new myths that will lead us forward into a much more inclusive and integrated age is to help people make sense of the historical riptide that we're getting smashed around by currently and to situate our understanding of the significance of this moment in an appreciation for 
not how this time, this transition, is punctuatedly, markedly different from anything that has come before. You know, not this Ray Kurzweil singularity, this point beyond which everything has changed, but to recognize that the history of life on Earth can be told as a story of nested singularities, of nested horizons of knowing and understanding, and that in many important ways that all the changes that we're living through right now are nothing really new we are repeating a, a theme with variation on the kind of intense and disruptive change that has happened again and again and again over the course of life on this planet. And so I want to start by reaching back a little bit into the history of, of geology and paleontology really quickly to establish that for much of the last 200 years, since we realized that there was such a thing as extinction, which was hotly contested at the beginning of the 19th century when we started noticing that some of these fossils were organisms that we couldn't find a living creature of anywhere. And it was, it was in, inconceivable to people that we would be living in a world with a god that would allow his perfect creations to perish to be wiped out. And so people fought over this for a while. And there tended to be, uh, in, in geology, there tended to be two schools of this. There were the, the gradualists and the catastrophists. The gradualists tended to believe that change occurred gradually. You know, slow, groaning, shifting, nothing that we could actually observe in the course of our lifetimes. Of course, this is now painfully, obviously wrong. Um, we're living in a, in a time to, to serve one back to Kurtzwill, in which we're likely to experience something like a subjective 20,000 years of change over the course of the next 100 years. But then you also have the catastrophists who, you know, are operating from an admittedly very biblical and specifically Old Testament understanding, you know, of floods and flames and plagues and other punctuating events. And nowadays we tend to reconcile these as that there is a punctuated equilibrium, that, there, that evolution and geology are always rolling, always shifting, that everything is constantly in a state of flux, but that there are certain moments that are decisively profound and impactful, like the impact of the giant meteor on the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago, which coincided with a two million year volcanic eruption, and the closure of the intercontinental seaway that had created a, a, a suitable habitat for all kinds of sea life and coastal life for dozens of millions of years in North America. And the establishment of a, an intercontinental land bridge between North America and Asia that allowed for all of these creatures to bring their diseases across. Like This is what they call the press pulse theory of, of mass extinction. It's usually not just one thing that happens, but that it's a complex confluence of things. That life is actually really robust and resilient, and that it takes more than one punch, typically, to knock out 50 to 90% of the species on Earth. But I want to point out that this gradual or catastrophic thing is a matter of scale. And I'm, I'm fond of digesting dualities for people, because I think that it's important for us to understand that these categories are just that, that they are mental abstractions, they are concepts that we use in order to orient ourselves in a blizzard of overwhelming experience. You know, that it, we, we use these ideas, we use metaphor to simplify and to orient ourselves, but oftentimes we, we literalize these things and we get trapped. So, you know, it's, it's safe to say that the gradual movement of sand at the human scale might be perceived as a catastrophic event to the insects living in that pile. You know, that an economically invisible alteration to the rainforest is a Ferngully level nightmare to the little creatures living in it. So 
in that sense, I also, and the meat of this, is that I want to digest the distinction between creation and destruction, because we're living in a time that uh, scientists are coming to agree is uh, can be regarded as a sixth mass extinction, a major and catastrophic destruction of biodiversity on this planet. But to do so would be to ignore the contrary evidence, which is that culture, language, human invention, the world of ideas, the world of structures and architectural forms, mineral species, and soon, you know, thanks to genetic engineering, actually like uh, organisms and, and, and life forms on this planet are diversifying at a completely unprecedented rate that is unparalleled, it's unmatched by anything in the history of this planet. There are new species of minerals coming into being faster than have ever been coming into being. What do you mean species of minerals? By species of minerals, I mean specific crystals or chemical compounds. You've got the Large Hadron Collider, and we're like smashing things together with amount with energy that's like unavailable in nature in other places. You know, so we're breaking things apart and fusing them together, and we're we're, we're performing alchemy at a level that wasn't even possible in the heart of a star. You know, it's there's there's some funky jazz going on right now, you know? I mean, really, truly, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, an explosion of novelty in the Terence McKenna sense of things, you know? And then if we step out a little bit, then I, I'm actually still in favor of the, the uh, Terence's 2012 being this, this moment historically where the amount of creativity that we observe in the universe is sloping towards vertical. You know, that we really, you know, whether or not it levels off, it, you know, as I think it probably will, but when? Who knows? Who knows? What scale are we looking at? How far into the fractal are we, right? I don't know. I don't know. You know, if you zoom into one of those mandel bulbs, like the, the three-dimensional graphics of a fractal, it's like you very quickly lose a sense of how, how big you are. You know, and I think that's kind of important that, that we understand that. But at any rate, what I what I wanted to, to do today is, now that I've sort of framed things, I just want to tell a couple quick stories, and then I want to open this to discussion, because I think discussion is more interesting, and I'm going to be speaking again here on Thursday anyway. So I want to start by pointing to a couple of precedents in Earth history that I think help orient and sense make for us in this time of extraordinary change and help us understand that in certain important ways we're not doing anything radically new or different from the way that life has operated in the past and will continue to operate long after we are gone. The first example is the evolution of photosynthesis. Like if we think now of the delicate and beautiful balance between the respiration of plants and the respiration of animals. Plants, they inhale our carbon dioxide, they exhale our oxygen. We inhale oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide, and it's so perfect and it's always been this way, right? No, no, it has not always been this way. For the first two billion years, pretty much most everything on this planet, and you know, this is, Linking in with Bruce's work and Bruce Damer, who uh, will be speaking here tomorrow, right? Thursday. Okay. Early life was all was all anaerobic life, which meant that for early bacteria, oxygen was a poison, and and it is. It's you know you think about like an internal combustion engine, right? That it's it rusts things, it sets things on fire at the macro scale. You know, it provides fuel for this combustion reaction. That was a toxin that uh, by discovering that we could, we meaning life here, just to make it clear that I'm not marginalizing any populations, um, that by learning to turn sunlight into sugar, we created oxygen as an accidental byproduct and we belched oxygen into the air for you know over a billion years and slowly 
started to rust, burn, and asphyxiate ourselves. And we drove ourselves, some of us, some of the survivors of this catastrophic event, continue to live in our guts and in peat bogs and other anaerobic environments where they have remained safe. You can think of this as the, the precedent for the Illuminati's underground bunkers and the DIA. That I actually believe that the conspiracy theories surrounding this underground bunker thing are perhaps a racial genetic memory, like an intuition of this trauma that all of us, that all life on Earth experienced billions of years ago. And that the survivors, the ones that, the ones that were not able to dig their way to safety, the survivors had to confront a toxic, polluted environment in which the only way to survive, the only, the only response, was to become the flame itself was to literally integrate this pollution into a glycolytic metabolism that uses oxygen as fuel for the production of sugars. So we are all, in that alchemical sense, we are the children of those ancestors that chose to merge with the flame of transformation rather than to hide from it. And I think that that's very resonant for us right now as we have created the mirror image of this atmospheric catastrophe with the advent of the industrial age and the pollution of our atmosphere with carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide from factory production. Wait, and, why did you say shows? Well, I mean, this is a loose narrative format here, but you know, to choose something, you know, as a tangent here, I don't know that any of us are really ever choosing anything. You know, the uh, Oxford and UT philosopher Galen Strawson has levered a, uh, a pretty awesome argument against free will, in the sense that, you know, that, that any choice that we believe ourselves to make is actually bound and contextualized. You know, our body limits the the, uh, the decisions of which we are aware. Our experience is, is nested in all of these ways, and. Ultimately, the person that we believe ourselves to be is just the um, committee-appointed sub-personality that occurs at the intersection of brain regions competing for blood glucose. So it's not, I don't know that choices, I find choice to be useful in a narrative sense, you know, in a, in a, in a story of like a hero's journey, that we met this obstacle. But then again, the hero is, is backed into a, a wall, typically, in this story. The, you know, the hero is propelled on this quest, and in a way, you know, Luke Skywalker had no choice, right? I mean, you, he appears to have a choice when he says, Yoda says, stay here, don't save your friends. But then again, you know, Luke, could Luke have done anything different? I mean, he loved these people. So, you know, he was motivated by emotions that were not truly accessible by a, a like, a determinate will, you know? They had, like, rallies, like, vote you carry out. Yeah, vote you carry out. <laughs> Hide underground. Stay and become the flame. I don't know, but so you know we're we're going through something similar here. We're going through something similar. There's a there's a uh, a tension now, as there has always been a tension between the progressive and the conservative factions. The ones that the, the future shocked traditionalists, the pastoralists, who would prefer to like retreat into the margins and, you know, raise goats. And then the people who are like, upload me into a computer as soon as possible, you know? Which I guess though, in a way, arguably, Eric Davis makes this point in Technosis, his, his fantastic book on myth, magic, and mysticism in the age of information, that this whole like techno-utopian longing is actually the misplaced concrete concretization of an ancient spiritual urge that we're projecting into our external technologies. And in that, in that sense, even folks like Jason Silva are painfully and perhaps even boringly conservative. But he's not, he's not rising to meet the Promethean flame of transformation. He's, he's begging for a, a, a potion of eternal life. He, he chooses to 
Lord does he to be this same guy in 300 years, which to me doesn't really sound like it's on the winning side of history. But, um, ooh, this is too good. Everybody, everybody's got to move with it when it comes, right? You just, the wave comes and you just get on it. So the next one, the next one is flowers. I love doing this because it's so subversive. I was talking about this with my new pal Shannon this morning. She has an apiary and we were talking about, I was teasing her with this talk about how flowers were one of the great catastrophes in the history of life. You know, like we, we like to think, again, we like to think of them and their, their perfection and their symbiotic harmony with pollinating species. We like to think of this, you know, this, this gorgeous field of daisies and wildflowers and all this. You know, you go out into a meadow in the mountain, in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and it just seems so perfect and so enduring. But the fact of it is that about halfway through the age of dinosaurs, the first flowers, the first plants that figured out that they could essentially bribe beetles and other other creatures into outsourcing their sexual reproduction. Instead of just having the pollen blow through the wind, which is extremely inefficient, really. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, it's onanism of the worst kind. It's just jizz everywhere. You know, it actually turns out to be much more effective and, in some sense, conservative to produce only as much pollen as is necessary for some creature to carry it to the next thing, and then to, you know, to spend, again, a relatively modest uh, set of resources on fruit and flowers and other delicious little treats and interesting folded creations that attract the interest of these creatures and, and seduce them in the rhetoric of author Richard Doyle in his fantastic book, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere, where he basically makes the case that it's beauty and seduction that are the, the major driving force in evolution, that it is the desire to release the boundary between self and other that is ultimately driving these recombinant relationships that sex is a far more effective R&D situation than just clonal reproduction. You know, the more you can recombine things, the faster you can recombine things, like in the Stanford Design School sense of like fail fast, fail often. You know, the quicker you can come up with 80 different patterns for kids, you know, the more likely that they are to thrive in an, an ever-changing world. So flowers show up and they are the ultimate disruptive technology. They make Silicon Valley look like child's play. Within a few million years, the entire landscape of the age of dinosaurs is totally transformed. And some of those dinosaurs are waiting in the wings, literally waiting for their act, waiting for that call to, to become the pollinators and to prey upon the pollinating insects and the smaller pollinating avian dinosaurs. And those creatures survived, and those creatures made it with us today because they moved out of the limited skin-enveloped container of selfhood, this strict genetic lineage that defined animal life up to that point and became participants in a networked identity, in a symbiotic self. And so they survived. You know, they're like you can think of birds and beetles and other pollinators as sort of the prehistoric cyborg that agrees to become a part of this networked identity, to be part of something bigger than the self, and therefore to participate in this, this recombinant creativity that in its utter transformation of the landscape made the world utterly uninhabitable to millions of varieties of creature. The flower killed the stegosaurus. It's kind of sad to think about this little this fern and pine cone-eating creature, the majestic stegosaurus, and it wakes up one day, you know, mythologically speaking, and everything is flowers, and it can't digest these things, and there it goes, you know. 
there's a new normal. And so I think that like, you know, both of these stories, the evolution of photosynthesis and the evolution of pollination, flowers and pollination, are stories in which new ecological niches, new opportunities, new metabolisms emerged in response to a disruptive crisis, in response to the pollution of the atmosphere, or in response to a rapidly metamorphosing landscape that became difficult to adapt to for genetically conservative creatures. And I see something going on like that right now on Earth, and I think it's important for us to see ourselves as a part of this process. You know, that even as, the, even as we are polluting the atmosphere, we are participating in the setting of the stage for what comes next. And, um, hold on just a moment, you guys. I have a visual aid. Frank, do you see that mushroom on the, on the table up there? Could you pass that around? My friend in Portland works at an aerospace subcontractor and they're building a flying car and the pieces of this flying car are sitting in styrofoam. And out of this styrofoam is growing this mushroom. This mushroom is eating the styrofoam. And when we were camping at, at Oregon Eclipse last week, our neighbors, one of them was a microbiologist who was working in a lab where they, were, they found that there are these, these polymers that will, that these bacteria organize in order to store energy and then they break them apart in order to release energy. They, they, they form plastics. So these bacteria literally eat and shit plastic. And the thought is that we may eventually be able to use genetically tailored cultures to grow plastic homes and then to eat our trash. And that we're already, they're already probably dozens of, if not hundreds of people worldwide working on using living machines in the sense that we've now digested the conceptual distinction between nature and technology. Because it is all just one thing, right? The planet is just doing this one thing. We've never truly been separate from it. We can argue about whether it's healthy or not, but I hope that the point that I've made is compelling, that our understanding of health or balance is about the way that we choose to frame it. It's about where we choose to stand in a relationship. You know, the scale at which we are observing this phenomenon. And so I actually have a lot of hope, I guess, is the ultimate point of this. I have a lot of hope that the crisis that we are in has become so dire, or will soon become so dire, that the woke among us will recognize a unique opportunity. As Bruce said on Duncan Trussell's podcast, Once Upon a Time, it actually doesn't make sense to go into space to mine asteroids for rare earth minerals because we have so many of them sitting in landfills. And then actually what we're gonna, what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna invent a new massive multi-billion dollar industry of recycling our trash with atomic sorting devices that we're, you know, that we're gonna learn to in the, set, in the way that Charles Eisenstein talked about human civilization maturing from the linear growth of weeds in an empty lot to a secondary succession, an ecosystem of mature canopy forest, that we're right at that turning point where we move from just total consumption of everything and total obliviousness to our waste to seeing every possible opportunity to turn trash into food. I was at Boom Festival last summer in Portugal. I met my friend there. And at Boom Festival, they had 384 composting toilets. And they were using the compost from these toilets to grow food gardens on a site that they purchased. And on this site, you could wander around the festival and eat this food, forage at will. And I thought, damn, like that's, that's how we're supposed to be doing these festivals. You know, we're not just supposed to burn everything at the end and call it a day, right? Like it's, sorry folks, like I, I, this is great, I love this, but we can begin seeing that this is how evolution works, that, that we're participating in the creation of a much more intelligent, diverse, rich, resilient, anti-fragile, specious, seductive, beautiful, delicious ecosystem on the other side of this crisis. 
that we can start looking for these opportunities. And that, you know, again, to, to draw on Terrence McKenna, that our only poverty here is not a poverty of material resources. Our poverty is in our imagination. It's in our ability to recognize those resources. And to take it a step further, our imagination is only impoverished because our attention is throttled. Our attention has been reduced. And that the more attention we can pay to our lives, the wider a valve we allow for the imagination of new opportunities and new ways of participating in a more beautiful world to emerge through us. So really, I see creativity and catastrophe as the same thing. And I, I forget the exact Chinese word, but they have, a, they have a one word. and It means both crisis and opportunity. And anybody who plays the stock market will tell you that. You know, you, you buy low. You know, when things are going down, that's actually when Warren Buffett is like, yes. So what? Any world leader will tell you that. Any world leader will tell you that, yeah, that, that a crisis is a fine time to seize an opportunity. You know, when everyone's running around, you can just go sit on the throne, you know. But at any rate, I'm hopeful, and I hope you're slightly more hopeful now, and I would love to invite and open this now to, to a conversation if anyone has something to add to this. It doesn't have to be a question. You're all smart people. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You just have to come up and talk on a microphone because we're recording this for the unborn population of folks that are listening. If you're willing to, or we, we can, yeah, we can run a mic out to you if that's more comfortable. I just want to ask about the mushrooms. Do you think in the way right, that we're kind of creating trash and do you think it's going to be enough? No. No, I don't think mushrooms will be enough, but I do think that that we, once we start thinking in this way, that we will start noticing all kinds of different opportunities. I think most of it will be bacterial, honestly. Although Paul Stamets has, has done a lot of really fascinating work using mushrooms to clean up oil spills and radiation spills. Yeah. And you know, that's nothing to sniff at. You know, but I do think that, that ultimately the most, the, the easiest life forms to train into a new meta, metabolic system, like to, to teach to eat something different, our bacteria. You know, you, the more complicated you get, the harder it is to, you know, like this, this thing, this massive animal eukaryote thing, this is like a nightmare bureaucracy of bacteria, you know, this is like, you, this is like a thousand million times more difficult than Congress to like change, right? Like the, the moment that I can start photosynthesizing, I'll be like, we did it, you know, but by then America will be, you know, totally renewable and I'll be driving my solar powered UFO or whatever. <laughs> You briefly mentioned radiation in, in terms of mushrooms decomposing radiation. It was something I was thinking about when you were talking is that choice of evolution and the people who will like stay at Chernobyl even though it's, I, I, I wonder if you have anything else to say about that. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing about, about all of that is that I almost wonder, there's like the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. It's the, it's the, uh, the witch doctor curse, you know, the bone pointing. If you can give someone the authority to tell you that you have six weeks to live, then that's what you have, you know, that you're, we, we sort of relinquish our health, our life, and our so sovereignty to these ideas. We put them into the charisma of you know other humans all too frequently, and so if somebody says like, oh you know, I mean I I don't know, but I do think it's compelling that long before we believed that Chernobyl or Three Mile Island were habitable, nature had returned to these places because nobody was telling the plants and animals that it was that they were going to die from radiation poisoning, and I wonder. I wonder about that. I think that maybe we're a lot more resilient and, and adaptable than we know, or at least that we're, you know, that we're a lot more. I mean, did you see the new Godzilla? No. So like, here's a here's a great story. The, the new the Shin Gojira is all about like what happens when we. It's not just a monster that radiation created. 
It's a monster that has learned to use nuclear fission to power itself because that's the only way that you could actually get an animal that large. Because you couldn't actually use like a normal animal metabolism in a 400 foot tall dinosaur thing. So they actually, they've been, the Japanese, the new, like the 2016 Shin Gojira, which is, is such an incredible film, um, gets into this whole thing about, it's, it's exactly this. It's how do we use radiation to power an even greater thing, you know, an even greater life form than uh, what we've got. So I don't know. With the alternative being going into a bunker, I'd rather experiment out here. I'd rather be Godzilla than <laughs> than the gray alien that wilted from a you know human Chihuahua thing. Yeah. I just had a comment to uh, to, to Chernobyl picture. Um, well, I'm from Denmark, so excuse me. This is great, but. You were saying this thing that, yeah, we know that uh, different animals, they thrive in this post-technic uh, world or after the nuclear uh, accident. So I'm just thinking that also tells us how inhospitable the landscape that we've created is when, when, when the animals thrive like that in a, in a highly radiated area. To think about how inhospitable that we make all the rest of this planet. That's a fine point, yeah. Although, you know, there is something really beautiful about the falcons, the peregrine falcons living in the belfry, you know, and like the pigeons. It's like, they don't, pigeons don't care where the food comes from, you know, they're happy to live in Central Park. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's. Yeah, except for when we're actually like actively hunting things down, I think the actual you know there, there's the the, sit, the city is actually a fairly specious place if we allow it to be. Something to add to what you said earlier, Michael is after the Duncan Russell podcast where I talked about a bucket wheel excavator going through landfills and a cyclonic sorter. A guy from Sweden wrote. You know, great innovative Scandinavians. He wrote and said, we developed one already. It's using in Sweden. And he sent a whole brochure about it. And it just takes waste, because there's zero waste in Sweden, right? They don't, uh, they incinerate, but they're pretty much, there's no landfills. And this thing goes up. And it's a cyclonic sorter, and it goes up and up and up, and, and different magnets pull out the metal flakes, and the resin comes out further up, and it's incredible. And then this, the products are just coming out on suction tubes. So it, it goes down to the individual particle level for metals and plastics and resins and things that survive long-term underground. Uh, amazing, you know. Bolts and things are down below. They're heavier, you know, these big, big parts. And, and in addition to your wonderful comments about uh, what defines success in biology, I read recently. Um, well, in where I live in the redwood forest, the most ultimate, largest plant exists, the redwood tree. But below it are club ferns and all kinds of ferns that outnumber. They used to be 100 feet tall. They were the dominant photosynthetic collectors. And now they're subsumed by redwoods, but the redwoods are disappearing. And the ferns outnumber the redwoods a 1,000 to 1 in the forest. So by the strategy of, of diminution, they have gained an advantage. And the ultimate is the mitochondrion. It turns out that you and your human body are 13.7 trillion cells, the same age as the universe. But then there's 100 trillion gut bacteria in your microbiome. But within each of those complex eukaryotic cells are thousands of mitochondria, which are the fire eaters, which are the symbiotic organisms that big cells sucked up in order to do that whole oxygenetic energy conversion. They, in your body, are 14 quadrillion. So they are the big winners of this game. And in the plant world, it's chloroplasts that have their own DNA and, 
and they're the, they're the symbiotic participants in the plant world that used to be cyanobacteria. So those are the big success stories, the ones that got into the house and uh, made, made their home, made a symbiotic environment work. They're the, they're the by the numbers, they're the, the big victors in this whole game of Terran biology. Similarly, you know, ecological co collapse tends to proceed from like keystone species down, right? So as our oceans are acidifying and we're, we're witnessing, uh, you know, a collapse of the more complex forms in the ocean, like the charismatic megafauna, you know, all these big adorable animals that we use for conservation posters. Uh, well. The jellyfish have made an extraordinary comeback. You know, they've just been kind of lurking in the background for the last 400, 500 million years. You know, just you know, waiting for the fish and mammals to fuck it up. <laughs> so, on the thought of there being a lack of distinction between nature and technology, what do you think of artificial intelligence existing as um, like a? natural evolution upon the human species and actually as an evolutionary adaptation to survive in climates that we have created to be um, non-habitable. Uh, but yeah, I was just kind of thinking about how um, just like the early hominids existed as our ancestors, we may be the ancestors to these new life forms, which exist within human consciousness. So they're essentially a continuation of ourselves, but they exist in machine bodies, which has a lot of advantages to our organic bodies. Um, so I'm just kind of curious what you think about that. Well, I think, you know, I mean, the, to get to that, Point. I mean, to get to that world that you're talking about, we're we're moving through a conceptual rearrangement where we're start we, for the last 70 years or so, cybernetics has regarded the flesh and blood as a machine with inputs and outputs, and it's you know behaviorally programmed and genetically engineered. And then, but at the same time, we're moving, we're, we're closing the gap on the other end of it too, where our technologies are becoming more and more alive and we're not really programming computers. We're not programming expert systems and artificial intelligences anymore. What the, the most effective strategy is actually to put two of them together in, and just sort of have them bootstrap off of each other. They teach each other, you know? And so we're, we're actually training Life and I'm actually I'm going to get into this in much more detail on Thursday because the, the Thursday talk is all about our our children, the you know, and like these these things that we're inventing and treating them as our children rather than reacting to them with with fear, you know, because if you treat your kids that way, it, it fucks them up. Everything that we're creating now, we want to treat it with with love and and an understanding that it's not. Some, it has a life and a destiny of its own, and it's not something that we control. Um, I think that the, the best articulation of this was Kevin Kelly in his book, What Technology Wants, where he draws a straight line for the evolution of intelligence. He calls all technology, he calls it the technium, and he regards it as the seventh kingdom of life. And he says that really, you know, the history of the universe is the history of the universe becoming more and more intelligent, meaning processing information at higher and higher rates and generating entropy that creates new opportunity at higher and higher rates. And so he sees it all as a single continuum from the Big Bang all the way through, you know, whatever post-human AI, and that it's not separate in the, in the sort of primitive, dualistic sense that we have regarded these things for the last few hundred years, again, as simply a way of giving ourselves some distance from what was admittedly a super difficult and complicated world. You know, like we walled cities off for a reason, you know, we, we killed all of the giant eagles the, in, in New Zealand for a reason, you know, they were eating our parents and our kids. You know, it's completely understandable why ecocide occurred in the first place, because we were just trying to make things safer for our kids, right? But I think we're kind of like at that point now where it's it's time to like get ourselves slapped around by the coach and like head back into the ring and you know like be a part of that engagement. If we're becoming more intelligent. Why are we still? Like, losing capital? <laughs> well, why are we 
why are we still doing this? Why are we still behaving the way we are? Um, well, I mean, everybody, to, to borrow a phrase from Ken Wilber, everybody starts at square one. We're all growing through and into our wisdom and our understanding, and we're all starting at zero, and uh, you know, we're all, we all start as a single cell, and then that cell has to learn how to relate to people and navigate this world with, with grace and nuance. And, you know, we really can't be expected to, we, we don't get any smarter than we're required to get. So if the society is not really asking that much of us, we're not going to go there. And I think we're finally at that point where sometime, you know, I'm, you're starting to see it in the next few decades, like we're already at the point where we can kind of shame people into ecological consumer behavior, you know, like into, you know, it's like it looks better to your neighbors if you're green and so capitalism took over that and like greenwashed everything and like we're getting to that point I think where really even the most egocentric asshole will be like, I have to behave, I have to do permaculture or I die. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like there's some there, there's a direct and imminent threat to the individual because we we're finally there, and so in a weird way, like that's my like I actually have this this perverse hope that comes out of things being so whack right now that like it's finally becoming obvious. Like you don't have to be a, a visionary wizard to see this stuff coming down the pike the way that you did 50 or 100 years ago. But I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, things are slow to change in this sense of like a single human lifespan, you know? All we can really do is contribute to the cultivation of a long-term view so that people are not required to be slapped over the head with it. That we can actually get people to start thinking about themselves in these larger frameworks. Who hasn't spoken? Who hasn't had an opportunity to say something that would like to say something? This is great, we're having, let's see, we got Europe, North America, and Australia representing this conversation so far. I'm into it. Hey. So I'm just touching on what you're saying, why we're acting the way we are and why we aren't changing. And I think like where society and government comes into things and like we're being mollycoddled in terms of and like we like in Western society especially I think we're just sort of being raised to think that the government will look after everything and like, we're not really taking that responsibility for ourselves because you know, they're putting in so much effort to keep things safe, you know, wear a seatbelt, wear a helmet, something goes wrong, we'll put up a fence, something goes wrong, we'll put up a big fence. Like, do you, I think that's like a really big barrier to us really realising the bigger changes that are happening out there and how we're going to have to adapt to them because we're being trained to think that someone else will sort it out, the government will sort it out for us. We don't enjoy anything because being spoiled and treated like children and everything will be sorted out by someone else. What do you think? I think that that's on its way out. I don't know how quickly it's on its way out, but I do think that we're kind of moving out of an age where like the only person in the room was the pharaoh and everybody else was just like identified in some relationship as subordinates to the pharaoh. You know, and so it's like the, there's only in that sort of like mythic god-king sense, there's only one ego in the whole room. And that's whack. That's actually why it's like, I, I'm not like super cozy up here being, this whole arrangement is weird, but you know, it's the new post-academic learning thing and the lecture is still alive. I think we're actually moving out of that because the pace of change is no longer suited to these massive national and international governance scales that take a long time to respond. Like if you think about it in terms of like a taller person, it takes longer for, you stub your toe, it takes longer for that nerve signal to reach your brain if you're seven feet tall than it does if you're five feet tall. You know, and if in fact the electromagnetic complexes, these patterns generated by planets and stars and such, are in fact creating some sort of galactic nervous system. Who knows? If it is thinking, then it's thinking on a time scale that's invisibly vast to us. Like it's it, a single thought would take our galaxy millions of years. So the bigger the level of like top-down central organization, the longer it takes for that system to respond. But things are 
are changing so rapidly now that the balance of power is shifting back into the local. And, you know, and this is really obvious when we were just in Portland last week, my buddy and I were in Portland, and there you have all of these little neighborhoods making their own decisions about how they're going to do their neighborhood, you know. And, and you have even like the, the level of organization at the intersection where they've painted these intersections to get people to slow down and pay attention and there's food gardens on all four corners of the intersection and it's all managed in the community and we're we are in the words of Jamaica Stevens and, and a bunch of my friends, we are re-inhabiting the village because we have essentially like emptied out these smaller and more immediate and faster levels of response that now need to be repopulated as an adaptation to like an extraordinary rate of change. Like all of these scales need to be occurring, need to be operating simultaneously. The very, very fast has to interact with the fast and then the sort of medium. And like in uh, Stuart Brand's book, The Clock of the Long Now, you get these um, sort of nested layers where they talk about fashion. News, the news cycle and fashion are very, very fast. And then you have like infrastructure, which is sort of slower, and government, and slower, and like religion and culture are even slower, and nature, you know, evolutionary time is slower still. And if you were to like knock out any one of those, the whole thing would come down. It's it's like layers that are, are moving, you know, with one another. So I want to be sensitive to time here. I know we have a uh, another talk coming up, and I, I want to make sure that I'm not running over. How, how are we doing? Four minutes over. Okay, you just let me know. Yeah, this is cool. I saw that we have a, the, the talk is people of Technicolor. Yeah. And so the whole talk that I just gave was about how evolution responds to crisis by creating new ecological niches and new opportunities. And so like this is evident. I I, I hope that I'm like dovetailing here by saying that this is this is evident in our our understanding of identity and society as the world is now moving so fast that like these simple like gender and race and class distinctions while they still remain cultural realities are starting to seem less and less sufficient for describing and experiencing the full range of human potential and so you know like i can kind of imagine a world in another 50 years where we're using gene editing tools to become whatever, you know, take whatever form we want. And so you, what bathroom do you go into if you're a, a dolphin with tentacles and three sets of genitals? Like, who knows? We're not gonna, we, we won't have the same arguments anymore. Um, yeah, earlier you mentioned that um, humans, when we started to take in oxygen, we took in the flame, uh, at least symbolically. And I've never really thought about that before. That's a cool distinction to make. Um, so, with that understanding, what are the implications for humans? Or like, how how can I use that knowledge to live like a better life as a human, even though I have like a flame inside me? Yeah, I think that maybe this is the place to, to call it, because I think this is where the boots really hit the ground, which is William Irwin Thompson, the historian, says that evil is the enunciation of the next level of order. And what he, what he meant was, in relationship to Brian Eno's famous quote about how the, the glitch of a medium, the scratch of the CD or, or the, you know, the buzz of a vinyl or the glitch of, of digital video ends up becoming a feature of the art of that new substrate. It was feedback that Jimi Hendrix used feedback, which was this undesirable sound, as a tool in his music. And in the same way, we can start looking at all of the undesirable things, you know, all of the things that we have cast away that we have regarded as as trash or noise. And this isn't just this is not just materially, this is culturally, this is psychologically. I think we're moving into an age where we're really we're really having to reclaim our psychological shadow and do do the shit work to take back what we have abandoned, to take back you know, the repressed body, the repressed feminine, again, the compost, you know, to not just make, you know, our excrescence and our death something that we're trying to hide from ourselves, but something that we have taken back into our embrace and, like, woven into a fuller sense of who we are. So I would just look at, like, the things that you avoid and try to, like, make love to them. I think that's the way forward. Yeah. So I think we should probably call it there because I, I get another chance to speak here at Thursday at 1. 
and I'll be playing music after Daniel Pinchbeck's talk tomorrow night at 9. So I'm going to leave it there, and I'm, I want to thank you all for, for being here and, and for being a part of this and for feeding this conversation with your thoughts and your attention. And if you'd like to stay in touch, then I'll, I'll pass a, some stickers and a clipboard around. Thanks, folks. Yeah, we can. Anyone who wants to, we can. We'll we'll take this over to the tea house, and we can keep going as we consume caffeinated beverages. Right next door. Thanks again for listening to Future Fossils podcast. A member of the MindPod network, along with such excellent shows as the Synchronicity podcast, Third Eye Drops, It's All Happening with Zach Leary. And many, many more. Go to mindpodnetwork.com to check those out. And if you'd like to support the show, give us a rating on iTunes or stop over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thank you and have a most excellent eon.